Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly sideshow where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Thanishree Rajendran. And I'm Jun Kim. And today we're going to get up to date on everything from speakers as thin as papers to DNA from space in another discussion on the sidelines. So, you know, we've talked about renewable energy a lot and, you know, we have solar panels, which are awesome, but I think there's been a ton of advancements in solar panels that honestly deserved a lot more media attention. So today I'm going to go quickly over the development of solar panel technology and the most recent development in 2022. So I'll start uh, in 2017. So a really cool thing they did was they made a solar panel that could retain energy for 18 years, which is super important because, you know, the main concern with solar energy is like, oh no, what if we have a cloudy day? Oh no, what if it's nighttime, right? So the idea is, can we store excess energy? Because then we can use it later when it's dark or cloudy. So the fact that we can store energy for 18 years, that was really awesome. And then in 2020, we kept going at these issues, but they actually tackled the issue a lot more directly. And I did not know this was a thing. And I think it's incredible that they've been able to do this. But a man named Carvey Aaron Maig created a solar panel that actually takes in UV radiation instead of the sun's photons to generate energy. And the reason why this is important is UV radiation actually gets through even on cloudy days. So you don't actually need bright sunshine all the time for this type of solar panel to work. So also, this is kind of a reminder that you might need sunscreen even on cloudy days. But the idea is, you know, there's other ways we can harness the sun's energy. And also in 20, 2020, a man named Jeremy Monday created something called the anti-solar cell. And this one's incredible because it's actually a solar panel that generates energy at night. And the way it works is like heat escapes the earth at night. It's a form of just like cooling off. And that heat that escapes is in the form of infrared radiation. And because of those temperature differences, what they do is they actually harness that energy that's leaving and gain energy that way. So this is a solar panel uh, that he calls the anti-solar cell that actually works at night. And to be fair, they're four times less effective, but they're still enough to charge a cell phone, which is still pretty good in my opinion. So that brings us now to 2022. I wanted to do this little history because I think it's just so cool that they've been doing all these developments. No, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. In 2022, where are we at now? Researchers created an ultra-thin chip that can store energy efficiently. So it's a small version of the initial finding. It's a super, super small chip that can retain solar energy or like sun-generated energy for a long time. Because one of the issues with solar panels is that energy is consistently lost. About, I think they said like 30% of solar energy is lost as heat, but this finding actually retains that energy and can store it for a long time, almost like a battery. So they want to have these mini like solar chips replace batteries. So instead of like going to the store for more batteries, you just go get your solar powered mini chips and, you know, replace your headphones, phones, everything with this. And that's because even batteries in their production and disposal cause environmental issues and pollution. So this is you know, even one more step towards a more sustainable future. So that's my quick little rundown of everything that's been going on in the solar panel world. 
Oh my god, that's amazing. I didn't even think about like getting like solar related energy at night. Mm-hmm, right? Yeah. And, and it's it's so crazy to think that like, I mean, first with UV, it's like something that is bad for us, but we're harnessing it for something like energy. And with yeah. night, it's just so counterintuitive, right? Like imagine telling someone from like 2010, hey, we're going to gain, like we're going to use solar energy at night when the sun isn't even there, right? So I, I just thought it was very interesting. Those no, it's definitely so interesting, especially with the chip. I can like see it almost replacing batteries. And I'm sure like, It'll take a couple of years, but for like sure, having for sure. that technology, we can do so much with it. Oh yeah. And batteries, like a lot of batteries end up in like landfill, I think, at the end exactly. of the day, if not treated exactly. properly. And they have bad like stuff. chemicals and uh just harmful compounds inside batteries as well. Yeah. So this is a nice alternative. So speaking of solar panels, I have this article where MIT researchers have created this portable desalination device, basically converting seawater to drinkable fresh water. So desalination is basically removing like salt and ions from water. So this device, okay, so converting seawater to drinkable water. I think we had that for a while now, but it's never really like doable or very commercialized or it's very expensive because usually these kind of devices are large and you need like all these different filters and high pressure pumps. But this device that they have a prototype of basically is very user-friendly, less than 10 kilograms, so it's like a suitcase almost, and it does not require any filters. And also, it has a portable solar panel attached to it. Oh, wow. All right. That's awesome. So that ties in, and it's very small. And the energy required to actually convert seawater to drinkable water is less than that of like a cell phone charger. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you need very little energy to actually like convert it. And you can, I think like in certain places you can purchase this for like $50. I don't know how commercially available this is, but based on the article, they say that you can purchase this online under $50. So a potential Christmas gift. Right. Exactly. And it sounds like, you know, even if it's not available everywhere, it should be soon because, you know, it's like a take home you know, supply of water, especially what I'm thinking is just tons and tons of places don't have access to things like filtered water or or clean water sources. But, you know, if you live next to the ocean and have access to this device, this is actually like game changing for that. Yeah. So another like big thing with this device and this MIT project is like being able to deploy this in like remote places and areas with like resources are limited, especially if like an island or like a nation's hit with like natural disasters and they're right. trying to recover, this is like a really good device to have. So let's just get into like how it actually works because this just sounds like magic if you right, right. don't know the ins of it. So what this device does is that it has an input of the seawater and it uses electrical power from the sonar, solar panel to actually remove the particles from the drinking water itself. So this way, you do not need any filters to be put in and replaced. So long-term wise, this is really good 
for maintenance. And also, it all requires this technique called ion concentration polarization. So this was pioneered by Hans Group, which is the group of researchers who worked on this prototype. And basically, what it does is that it has electrical field on membranes, boat running on top and the bottom of the channel of water in the device, and then it uses it uses um, positive and neg negatively charged particles to be repelled. So salt molecules, bacteria, viruses, as they fall through the water. And it also uses another technique called electrodialysis to remove any remaining salt ions that could be there. And by WHO standards, at the end of this process, the water is drinkable. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy because it's like, you know, when we think of like a typical water filter, we're like, ah, oh, we need to have it go through all this, like these multiple filters, these gradients and stuff like that. But this is literally just using electrical charge, it sounds like, to just take away all the bad ions and salts and things that might contaminate the water. And it, it just seems so, so, so much simpler, you know? It is so much simpler and like, it's kind of also easy to understand and it's portable. Like this can help a lot of people. I right. Think. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's portable also just means that like, it, people can buy this themselves and, and use it for their own needs and stuff like that. Because I, I like that it's super accessible. I think that's the, the most promising part of all of this. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think you said that MIT researchers were part of this project, right? Yeah. So my next story is also from MIT researchers. So it looks like MIT researchers have been working extra hard this week. <laughs> <laughs> they have created speakers that are as thin as paper. That's the tagline. So when we think of like a speaker, you know, that plays music or anything like that, they're usually like the size of a water bottle. But like, let, let's be honest, like some are quite small. They can maybe be as small as a hockey puck or something like that. But and typically it doesn't get any smaller than that. And it has now substantially gotten thinner, right? Because it's as thin as paper. So how does it work? I, I think that's the big question. So engineers at MIT created a speaker that is fully functional. It plays music. And, you know, the link will be part of the description in our podcast episode. And there's a video attached to that link as well. So uh, feel free to check out that video if you'd like to actually see this at work in action. But the craziest thing about the speaker, in addition to the fact that it's paper thin, is that it also uses much less energy than a traditional speaker and has tons and tons of cool applications. So I'm, I'm just going to list off a few and, and you let me know which one's your favorite. So okay. since it's, it's so thin, it's as heavy as a dime, so very, very light because it's thin. But this application is that you can have this paper-thin speaker almost like wallpaper wherever you would like. So you can just put this on your walls or you can line a car with this. You could have your entire desk lined with paper or like, I don't know, if, if you were fancy enough and you wanted to have a house that had a ceiling lined with the speaker, you could do a lot of stuff with this. Is is there anything that, that you think of when, when I'm listing all of these things off? Oh my god, no, it sounds amazing. The lining, like I'm just imagining like a home like TV setup where right. the paper wall basically behind like yourself is where the speaker is and it's coming from the wall. That sounds so cool and insane to me. Yeah, I mean, when, when I heard, I mean, this is literally how they said in the article, and it's like, we can put up wallpaper of speaker, which I think was incredible. But how does it work? I think that's the big question. 
So a normal speaker uses wires, right? Coils of wires, and that creates a magnetic field. And actually, this was very interesting for me too, because I didn't know how speakers or even headphones and things like that worked. But they use coils of wires that creates a magnetic field, and that moves the air around it in specifically desired ways. And that air being pushed around by those magnetic fields, that's how the sound is created. Uh, obviously, this is a much more simplified version of the actual robust uh, explanation, but that's generally how it works. But if you have a paper-thin speaker, you, you can't have wires. Wires are thicker, thicker than um, paper. So this new speaker uses something called a piezoelectric material. And what it does, very simply, is if you add some voltage. So unfortunately, right now, you have to like add two like clips that give voltage to the paper. So other than the clips, the entire speaker is paper-thin, but the clips themselves obviously can't be. But the clips add some voltage to the paper-thin speaker, and that moves the air around the paper-thin speaker itself, and that creates sound. But for now, you need the movement of the paper-thin speaker. So you can't actually have it like on a flat surface or plastered to a wall because the, the speaker itself being able to move and like kind of, you know, like a piece of, like imagine a piece of paper just like floating down and like falling. It needs to like kind of move and wiggle for the, the sound to actually come out. So they even thought of this though, right? Because the, the goal of this is hopefully to plaster, you know, paper thin speaker on your walls or something like that. So to get around that, they actually just made mini domes that vibrate freely. And, you know, the details of how this works are, are probably far beyond my understanding. But because they're able to vibrate independently, uh, it is now those mini domes that are on the speaker that move rather than the entire speaker itself. So that would allow it to be plastered everywhere. So the last finding is then sound quality wise. I assume that's another big question that people have. Uh, I'm going to be honest, they will probably not beat your Beats headphones or Bose sound system. Not yet, at least. But they're energy efficient, super versatile, really thin. I really would like to have the paper thin speaker wallpaper one day so i'm excited to see where this goes no oh my god i just i can't wait until it's like plasterable like on the exactly. wall because i can <laughs> just imagine like a nice home theater almost oh, without oh. like having to spend so much money that'd be an awesome one that's a very cool application okay so going from like monday to back to like maybe just about 200 million years ago just okay. just about okay. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about the story of Ithiosaurus. So Ithiosaurus is basically this marine dinosaur or marine like reptilish dinosaur that used to live about 200 million years ago or 250 million years ago to be more precise. And it's it's lived through like most of the primordial ocean and it's seen during the Triassic period, basically. So it has a very elongated body with like a small head. I like to say that it's kind of like dolphin-ish if dolphins were a reptile. Okay. And more you can see more evidence of like dolphin-like species in like later years, like 90 million years ago. But basically, the reason I'm bringing up this magnificent giant is because 30 years ago, a group of scientists and researchers discovered vertebrae, ribs, and a tooth of Ithiosaurus in the high Alps of eastern Switzerland. So oh, wow. basically 2,800 meters above sea level. How this um, 
specimens and like fossils ended up there yeah it is just well i guess 200 million years worth of stories but basically for the last 30 years they knew it was kind of like ichthyosaurus fossils but they couldn't be more precise with it because we didn't have much evidence at that time but recently a group of scientists from the university of bonn were allowed to like research it and find more precise information about these fossils so basically what they found was that these fossils were made from or came from three different entire animals oh okay so three different types of ichthyosaur species so they're all kind of the same but not really one species was um basically about 20 meter meters in length based on the vertebrae and rib samples that they were able to retain the second species was about 15 meters they estimated based on its vertebrae alone and the last specimen they found was a tooth and that was the most peculiar specimen because the root size or diameter of this tooth was 60 millimeters i know it's not yeah, so 60 millimeters, about six centimeters. That might not sound that big. But it's a tooth, yeah, <laughs> to be <it's> fair. <laughs> but the largest um, tooth of an ichthyosaur that has been found to date is only 20 millimeters. Oh, so a third of the size. Yeah, so this new tip is about three times the size of the largest known ichthyosaur. But they didn't find any other fragments from that is related to this tooth. So it's very hard to estimate the size of what this creature or owner of this tooth would look like just from the diameter itself. Because we don't have vertebrae and like we don't have rib samples for it. However, even though we can't tell its entire length, it is a giant specimen. But we're not going to claim that it is the largest ichthyosaur right, fossil found today. And the reason is predators, especially during this era, are thought to be no larger than a sperm whale because it's just not possible. So this is because um, through research, we assume that extreme giganticism, basically nature, we would see like this usual creatures this especially happens in like very deep sea where you have like one species of like a bug being way bigger than the other based on their environment so that's extreme giganticism does not go hand in hand with predatory lifestyle so a creature that experiences giganticism are typically not predators for example the blue whale one of the biggest organisms on the planet it's not a predator because you the creature needs to gain certain amount of calories to actually maintain that body mass for long periods of time and throughout its lifespan so they think that this is not particularly from a giant ichthyosaur but maybe an ichthyosaur with giant teeth right so that's, <laughs> that's where possible. we're landing for today until we get more evidence right my completely unofficial 
estimates, and this is obviously just from my complete guess and has no actual scientific backing at all. I think it would be cool if that smaller one, that smaller tooth was like a baby tooth of some sort. And this is just like the biggest molar or something like that. I think that's, I, I mean, that probably doesn't explain a three times size different, but I, I think that'd be a very interesting thing. And, and the other thing is also just, it's so cool that you can just take a bone, like just from the rib cage or something like that and be like, ah, yes, it is exactly you know, 40 meters long, like that in and of itself is crazy that that's possible or the process by which they do that. Really cool what these, you know, researchers can do. It is so cool because like you don't really, I don't know how dinosaurs are so big and all these creatures <laughs> from the past are so big and I want to see one so badly, but just knowing the existence is amazing. Right. And can we talk about the fact that this was found at the top of a mountain? I, I think that's so cool. It's it's just that like, you know, this that mountain used to be the ocean or at least like the sea floor of some degree. And after just moving all of throughout this time, that tectonic plate just turned into a mountain. I, I think that's crazy. That is crazy how much the earth, like the landmass actually changed. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, how much how many like fossils were, of like marine life we're finding in landlocked areas. I, I Very cool stuff. <laughs> so. That was a super cool trip down uh, the history of some dinosaurs, and NASA has instead looked to the future. So every 10 years, NASA actually gives a, not like a statement, but kind of like a report. And, you know, obviously, since it's 10 years, 2012 was the last time they put out this report. And that means 2022, they have put out their next 10-year plan. Like, you can consider it a 10-year plan. And I thought it was very interesting what they are planning, what they'd like to do. And, yeah, that's what I'm going to share right now. So the biggest flagship mission, the biggest thing that they announced that's uh, of peculiar interest is they would like to visit the planet Uranus. Uh, for the first time in ever, actually. The first time since the original uh, Voyager 2 mission. So this is a $4 billion project and humans have only been sent or, or sorry, have sent a dedicated mission to Uranus once in the Voyager 2. And that was 1986 and no, nothing else has been sent to that planet because it is quite far. So this launch is planned for 2031 or 2032. And, uh, do you want to take a guess on how long it'll take this probe to get there? Oh my god, it's to Uranus, right? Yes. Oh, 10 years? Oh, you're, you're just about there. Uh, 13 years to just get there. <laughs> so oh I, I understand why they haven't really invested a lot of money to, to visiting this planet. Same thing with Neptune. Neptune has also only been visited once by the same mission, by the way, Voyager 2. So yeah, that's one of the big ones that they announced. And they also had a cool report as well. They like to report the things that have happened in the past 10 years. So an exoplanet is a planet that is not in our solar system. So there were 1,000 reported exoplanets in 2012. So, and that was from the last NASA decade report. So the 2012 report. So uh, would you like to take a guess on how many exoplanets, so planets that are not in the solar system, have been recorded as of 2022's NASA decade report? Oh my God, what was that in 2012? 1,000. 1,000. About, okay. about 1,000. Okay, I'm going to say they doubled it. 2,000. They went far beyond your expectations, and they have listed 5,000 now, actually. They say 5,000 wow. exoplanets. So, you know, it might look like we're going to continually find more and more planets as things go along. So that's pretty cool as well. 
And, you know, just to kind of top this all off, the other reports that they've also wanted to, or I guess announced as of now, they want to make a mission to Mercury, but this one is a landing mission. They would like to land on the surface of Mercury. So that's pretty cool. And they also want to do another observatory mission to Saturn and its moon Triton. So a lot of space stuff coming up. Uh, obviously, nothing yet about uh, humans going on to Mars. I think uh, some other maybe private companies might be heading the, the charge on that one. Uh, but NASA themselves seem to be more than happy to continue their unmanned missions, you know, to a bunch of planets in our solar system. No, that is so cool. I like hearing these 10-year reports because, like, it only seems to exceed your expectation. Right. Like, every single time. Because we really don't think about space exploration as much. It's always in the periphery just because, like, it's so out of the way. So having this report and, like, knowing about that is so cool. I cannot wait for them to, like, go to your race. That sounds like a fun time. And like, think about it, like every single picture you've seen of Uranus, like ever online, that is coming from either a few telescopes that like have, you know, great lenses, but the only ones that have actually been taken up close, like near the planet's surface was by Voyager 2. So that means that like, we might be able to see this planet in a completely new light because we've never taken a picture close to it before, only from, you know, a distance at Earth, right? So uh, maybe maybe they'll find something interesting. Who knows? <laughs> that would be so cool. We'll get new updated pictures. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I have one last story for you today, and it's about finding all the bases for DNA and RNA on meteorites. All so, right. Staying in yeah, space. <laughs> staying in space. More exciting news. So we have found evidence to suggest that there's some light precursor, life precursors that could have came from space because we don't really know what the origin of life is. Either we have bases and chemicals from meteorite or was it like basically chemistry on Earth that resulted in it? And just happened, exactly. Yeah, it just happened. So what through this research, what they have found is that space rocks that fell onto Earth in the last century alone contain the five bases that store information for DNA and RNA. So just to recap, DNA and RNA is basically made out of nucleobases called adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and uracil. Combined with certain sugars and phosphate, you make up DNA and like RNA, the genetic code of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. So in this study by an astrochemist from NASA, as well as geochemist from a university in Japan, Hokkaido University, to be more specific, they found that based on the meteorites that they have analyzed in Australia, Kentucky, and British Columbia, so nice. some Canadian meteorites, they found that all four samples from these three locations contained an abundance of bases and other components that are required for life. So how they did that was that previously, um, a lot of these research, even though they had the meteorite, it was hard to analyze and look for these chemicals because the technique wasn't as sensitive. So now with new technology and new technique in this recent years, they were able to like actually pinpoint 
and like separate all these chemicals. Mm -hmm. But there is some contention that even though they did find all these bases of life in the samples, that it could be contamination from soil. But they have argued back saying that there are specific isomers for, of this basis that can only be found in the meteorites. So through research, if they had both samples of the soil around the meteorite and the meteorite samples itself, they couldn't find the isomers on the soil. Right, they can rule things out that way. Yeah, so it rules things out, basically. But another exciting thing that's happening to kind of almost help like clear up the story even further is that the researchers are getting meteorite that were directly extracted from the asteroid um, Raigu, which is from a Japanese voyage, as well as another mission from NASA. It's supposed to be back by September 2023 with samples from astronaut asteroid Bennu. So what they're hoping to do is getting these extracted samples from the asteroid, the source itself, to right. figure out if they can find the bases. And if they can prove that these bases were to exist in this asteroid, then like samples that did not come in contact with Earth at all, this gives new light into where source of life on Earth could actually come from. Right. I mean, that's so cool. I mean, asteroid mining is now a real thing. And I think you mentioned this before with the, the, the story on the dinosaur. And you said 30 years ago, these were found. And, you know, you're, they, yeah. now with modern technology, we can look. And you said something similar here, too, right? Like with modern technology, we can now analyze these asteroids better. Exactly. Or meteorites. I think it's so cool. Like, what, how, what else have we missed? Like, what else can we look back on and find something completely new with the technology of our time? That, that's all I can think about. Yeah, and this is what keeps me up at night. I swear <laughs> to God, June, like just thinking about everything that has happened so far and like what have we missed? We probably missed a lot. <laughs> yeah, and this gets me so excited on like ocean exploration because like space is amazing and cool and I absolutely love learning, th learning things about the space. But like deep sea exploration is like my favorite thing to view. So I'm so excited. Right. And, and just to get back on the, the meteorite finding, I think it's so cool. I, and obviously, there are still things to be proven and still things to be researched. But if it is true that, you know, this is a potential source for life, I mean, I think it's crazy that all the building blocks actually weren't on Earth. The building blocks came from somewhere else. And the first single-celled organism just kind of pulled the, the building blocks together themselves. <laughs> I think that's kind of poetic, you know, because we look for life outside of Earth. but you know, it's it's kind of like that saying, you know, the friend, the real friends are the ones we made along the way. Uh, the true life that we were looking for actually came from space all along anyways. I know. Oh, my God. That sounds amazing. But that is all we have for you today. Thank you so much, June. Oh, thank you. I love these stories. Always so interesting to see what is happening in the science world. Exactly. And thank you again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversation and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about space, speakers, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at Sci for Everyone. 
and on our website at www.signsforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Signs for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Merketty, June Kim, and Tanishree Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.